Alright, so we're talking about the development of the art of practicing with Eros so that it is soul-making uh, and fertile working with the imaginal and informal practice in our life. Uh, the wisdom of that, uh, what does wisdom mean in that, the art of skillful response, what does balance mean, how do we create uh, the vessels, how do we uh, tend to the fire and modulate the fire and all that. And we've already said <clears throat> that we don't want to just alternate uh, between practices of fire and practices of earth so to speak, the, the fire, practice of the fire of Eros and practice of the, 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 the um, steadiness of the earth, the equanimity of the earth. We don't just want to move between these and kind of hope that a balance comes out over time with that that will help. Certainly that's important. Um, practices that bring steadiness, equanimity, spaciousness, strength, rootedness, these are important um, when, when they're done alone and part of the totality of the path, like we've already said this. Um, but we're also interested, and what I really want to go into is the question of balance and equanimity, even if we say that, sustainability, fertility, while engaging with the imaginal, while engaging with the erotic imaginal. And so what I'm talking about here has uh, applies... Um, to any imaginal perception. Uh, we're talking about the imaginal dimension, so it could be something, so to speak, completely intrapsychic, an intrapsychic imaginal figure um, that doesn't seem to bear any relation to anyone we know, etc. It could be an actual person seen, sensed, imaginally, the imaginal perception of someone in our life or someone uh, that we know from history or whatever it is. Um, so, for example, um, someone comes to me and he or she says, there's this person and I'm really attracted to them. I want to be in relationship with him, with her, with them. And and it's painful because they have said, they've communicated um, that they don't want that, that they're not interested in that. And the natural inclination and the taught uh, uh, path there would be let go of that, you know, let go, turn away, find someone else, um, feel your emotions, etc. But in fact, another possibility, and and in a way, a more um, fruitful possibility, a deeper possibility, sometimes actually go in. This this person already exists for you as an image. Go into the imaginal dimension. Allow the image of them to, uh, if you like, to be amplified, to enlarge, as as it as it would with the eros dynamic operating. Dwell with that image. Be sensitive to it. Meditate with it. Open to it. And 
lo and behold, person does this, and they often find that, yes, what happens, when I allow the imaginal, the imaginal will reveal its dimensionality to me. That This person becomes much more than the one-dimensional, concrete, actual person. They become alive with dimensions. They become, if you like, huge, or, or bigger at least, uh, multi-layered. There's a richness, a depth, a beauty, vitality, multifacetedness of the image there. The image, uh, instead of trying to get rid of it or shrink it or contain it or or shrink it down to the actual, actually we're allowing it to to open and ourselves to open to it. And the whole thing opens up. The whole sense of the problem or the situation or this other person, the self in relation to it, opens up. The problem is flatness. The problem is um, over-concretized uh, one-dimensionality of, of, of perception, reification. Then we actually don't see. We think we see, and that the imaginal is not seeing, but we actually do not see. We're not seeing deeply, fully, imaginally, soulfully enough. And therein, in that reification, in that not seeing, in that lack of fullness, is, is the problem and comes the problem. Flatness, killing, suffocating, strangling, cramping. And then, if we can open to the image and allow the image to open, we, we, we will see very often that it's not, it then doesn't feel like it's about it matters much what actually happens in in the one-dimensional, uh, you know, so-called reality. We've got something else then. Something else opens up, and it doesn't actually matter. The image is much bigger than that. Much, much bigger. And we may ask with that, who is this? Who is this in this image? I thought it was this person that I've been trying to tell that I'm interested in them and I would like uh, to pursue a relationship, whatever it is. Um, but who is it? As I go into, into the sense of them and allow, as I said, all the sensitivity, all the resonance, all the opening, the energy body, the beauty, the soul making, who is this person? Who is this? The imaginal there. Can I begin to see and sense in the image of them, in the image, in the way they come imaginally alive to the psyche? Can I see and sense the angel there, the angel that they are to me, the theophany, the divinity in the image? So really talking about practice here. When that begins to open, that sense of um, the angel, the theophany, the divinity in the image, then because I'm actually perceiving that, and I'm, I'm sensitive, I'm open to it with the whole of my being, the energy body, the mindfulness, the sensitivity, the delicacy, the tuning, then it's as if I, my being, my psyche is infused, so to speak, uh, there's an infusion to myself of that angelic nature, of that theophany, of the divinity therein. I don't need this or that to happen. I don't even need this or that to happen in the image. There's an infusion directly, it permeates and penetrates the psyche. And I have something, I have actually much more than I thought I wanted in the first place.
much more. And so this could be any kind of relation, not necessarily romantic uh, uh, or, or sexual desire. It could be any kind of relationship. Uh, with a teacher, wh- wh- whatever it is. And someone says, you know, some, take it to a teacher, take it to a therapist, and say, let go, let go. And of course, that's the, that's the standard message, isn't it? Let go. And it sounds so simple, it sounds so wise. But not all the time is it wise. Let go, or, oh, actually, and what does it mean to let go when there's complex situations? It's, again, it sounds so simplistic, etc. What does it actually mean? But instead of letting go, there is the possibility, actually, no, go into this image. Uh, claim it, if you like, let it have a claim on you. Let it have its claim on you. Enter in, open to the image. Let it open. And there will come, in relation to this person that I can't have, maybe maybe they're dying, maybe they might die, maybe uh, what, whatever the situation is, and whatever the kind of relationship we're talking about, friend, teacher, student, potential lover or not, or whatever it is, the image opens, and with it comes peace, beauty, soul-making. The opposite movement of what we thought. Sometimes for us in, in certain spiritual traditions or, or other traditions of psychotherapy, etc., we're indoctrinated without even realizing it. And the indoctrination here is just let go. Let go is, is the answer. Can we explore? Can we question? Can we uh, check where we might be indoctrinated and see what other parts are open to us? But I'm talking about practice here, not, not some vague idea. I'm actually talking about entering into practice so that we perceive certain things. There's the imaginal perception. They become very alive, very vital, very meaningful, very tangible, very real for us, these imaginal perceptions. So in a way, what's happening here is we're um, allowing the eros. It's another way of saying this, because eros and the imaginal go together. Allow the eros, allow the feeling of the desire, allow that erotic charge, and um, allow it to increase. Go into the image, allow the eros to increase. There's slightly different angles in on the same thing, really, if you like. But allow the eros to increase, and what will happen? The, the eros psyche, because the eros is increasing, it, it stimulates, um, it uh, ignites, etc. It ex- starts to expand, inseminate, <coughs> fertilize the eros psyche logos dynamic, the soul making dynamic, the mutual insemination, fertilization, deepening, widening, expanding, complicating, enriching of all that we've been in through into. It expands. That whole soul making expands, the psyche expands, the ideation expands. All of it. And peace comes with that. And this can be a huge surprise. If we're, not, uh, if we're accustomed to the, the, uh, the, the usual indoctrination there. Going into the image. Opening to the image. Opening to the eros. Allowing the eros. Not cutting it. Not trying to stifle it or erase it or put it away, etc. Peace. And sometimes what happens is, is one... Um, enters into because of the the imaginal other the the erotic object the beloved other whatever that is whether it's uh, a human or an 
animal or some some nature or an imaginal figure, whatever it is. And there can be a sexual penetration, there could be just an entering into the being, because the imaginal object, with the stimulation of the soul-making dynamic, as we said before, the image gets deeper, wider, more complex, more multidimensional, more fast, more multifaceted. And sometimes in allowing that to happen is as if we enter into the the the, the imaginal other, as if they become to us a territory, a soul landscape. And I might enter into them through a, a imaginal erotic penetration or whatever, a sexual penetration, or I might just enter in into their eyes, into their soul, and their soul becomes for me a garden, becomes for me maybe even a paradise. So the, the image opens, gains dimensionality, and becomes available for us. And there's peace with that. I have something there. I have something uh, priceless, in fact. So this is all very interesting. Um, and it comes from it's the going into the image, opening to the image, not, not stopping it, not uh, putting it down, not turning away from it, and also the eros, allowing, opening, going into. But there's lots that's interesting here. <clears throat> when there is desire for us as human beings, when there is desire, I would say there's always operating, whether we're aware of it or not, conscious or unconscious, there's always operating a conception and an evaluation of that desire, a conception of the desire itself that's present, and an evaluation of it. So, for example, it's wholesome, it's unwholesome, it's part of the path, it's definitely not part of the path, um, it's a defilement, it's holy, it's neither this nor that, whatever. There's always some conception, some evaluation. And either that conception and evaluation of the desire that's operating um, allows us or supports our trusting the desire, its energy, its movement, allows us to see its beauty, etc. Or it doesn't allow that, doesn't allow the trust, doesn't allow the sense of beauty. So that's interesting too, and that's something we'll return to. But what's the concept and the evaluation of the desire itself operating? So I'm going to come back to this a lot. But as well as that, I wonder whether in some way or another there's always a kind of projected, uh, I don't know what to call it, um, anticipation or um, relationship with the having of the object of desire. There's always a projected um, relationship with the having of it. And what, what I mean is, Desire, when we anticipate getting what we desire, or when we anticipate, say, the consummation of, of a, a se- sexual desire or passion, or um, that's quite a different experience, isn't it, than the desire um, where we project or anticipate uh, not getting it, or if it's coming from a feeling of lack. And then if we anticipate, there's a feeling of lack, and we anticipate not being able to have this object that I desire, this one that I desire, whatever it is, um, how does that then shape the whole experience? Color, shape, determine, direct the whole experience. 
So those are the two obvious ones, but actually there, there are many more in terms of this projected. What's my relationship with the idea or, or the anticipation of getting or not getting or being able to have or not being able to have? There are, there are actually others in which we'll go into, um, for example, realizing that I already have it in some way. We'll return to that and, and others. But um, if we take that uh, second possibility there, the, the, the feeling of lack, for example, um, or imagining, uh, projecting that one can't have, one won't be able to have this object. Um, sometimes one possibility is, okay, noticing that's what's happening and feeling the feelings with that and feeling the whole kind of psychic constellation with that. Maybe it's frustration. Um, maybe it's uh, um, some kind of feeling of inferiority, etc. I want to share something from someone's process that they uh, uh, are allowing me to share. Um, so it's a complicated scenario here. I won't explain all the things, but um, all the all the details of it. But they, this person, he writes, um, so he was describing what what happened with someone where there is a kind of boundary. And uh, and because of the boundary, and there was the desire, etc. And and uh, uh, he said, I felt a bit trapped. And I'm kind of reading and paraphrasing what he said. So I felt a bit trapped. He said in a mental and emotional space that somehow reminded me of a teenage feeling uh, or sense I had as a teenager um, that I I couldn't reach her. That this uh, this one that that was uh, desirable for him. His his. Uh, erotic beloved I couldn't reach her she seemed and she seemed in this this kind of constellation she seemed really together and kind of cool and kind of out of my class she was out of my reach it was as if a sheet of glass separated us I could see her but I was removed I couldn't touch her and in this he said I felt inferior somehow and then so this was not a very common um pattern for him, but he recognized it from when he was a a teenager and before. Somehow he felt inferior, not being able to have. She was somehow better than him, out of his class, out of his league. And and then he consolated into this kind of um, what he would do go go as he put it on his solitary and lonely way, kind of a bit uh, a bit of a, a tramp or an outcast, leaving alone, etc. So there was pain and frustration. So encouraging him to feel it, to really be with that, and really feel the frustration. And he said, uh, and his reporting, uh, strong in my body. It was really strong in my body, but actually became, with with the allowing of it, it actually became strong eros as I was with it and felt it. And it turned very intense and beautiful. And he describes, so this is staying with the image, okay, um, allowing the eros with the image, really feeling it in the body, but staying with the image. And the image started to transform. And he said, like a lion, I wanted to devour her, rip her flesh open with my teeth, tear her limbs apart. None of it angry or destructive. Okay, don't make that mistake here of assuming this is um, a kind of angry violence or destructive or anything to do with rape or anything like that. None of it angry or destructive, he writes, but deeply animal erotic, wholly in its very particular, utterly non-ethereal way. I was reflecting that word devour. Uh, It's probably not etymologically related to the word devout, 
but uh, there's something called uh, we can call um, following Paul Kugler here, an archetypal psychologist. There's an archetypal resonance between sort of clusters of words, devour and devout. There's a holiness here, as he writes, holy in its very particular, utterly non-ethereal way. So again, this is. Remember, we were talking about the substantiality, the carnality of the image. This is a really carnal, substantial image. It's not light and airy, fairy and insubstantial. This one is is utterly non-ethereal, he writes. It's immensely animalistic, potent, roaring, beautiful force. I... In the image, I lick her insides, her organs, her blood, tear her flesh, lick her brain. A lion, dominant, standing over its prey. And again, prey, P-R-E-Y, E-Y, excuse me, and prey, P-R-A-Y. Again, is there some archetypal constellation um, in, the, in the very words here, in the poetry of the words, some connection there in this case. He continues, licking, gouging, feasting on her flesh and her juices and fucking her too deeply. So there's you know, sexual and carnal, all of it. And he writes, there's a particular kind of loving of her in all this too. So he's, it's, as I said, not violent. It's not just the anger of frustration. Something happened and it opened. And there's a particular, if for most people, a kind of unusual kind of loving of her in all this. Um, very beautiful. It was very moving for him. And the previous stuck sense of not being able to reach her, feeling inferior and frustrated and all that, utterly dissolved and was replaced by an intense sense of connection through participating in the lived energetics of the image. So something through really sticking in with, sticking with um, uh, what was quite a difficult um, experience that was constantly really bringing the mindfulness, really bringing the, the skill and the art of practice um, with some help there, um, uh, opened up this, you know, very carnal, but very vital, very beautiful, deeply and deep and deeply holy um, image. Now, it, it wouldn't have to be, could, could be any kind of, uh, the image could open up in any direction or with any kind of quality, etc. We don't know, but there's something here Tracing the emotion, finding the difficulty, energy, body, let the eros constellate, let the image fill out and see what happens. Now, sometimes I've touched on uh, another point in relation to all this before. Um, and you'll notice how it applies to that image that I just shared. Um, but sometimes what happens... Uh, with the erotic imaginal, or with eros, or with desire in our life, is that there's, um, and also sometimes with devotion, that there's an imbalance, uh, and uh, a kind of um, constriction or block, as we've talked about in different ways, um, of the eros psyche logos dynamic, or a better word is an a block in a certain direction, causing the whole thing to be imbalanced. I'll explain what I mean. With an image, with working with the erotic imaginal, again, whether it's sexual erotic or devotional erotic or, or, or whatever, and that whole range of eras, um, what it needs to be balanced and to be unblocked, 
so to speak, in every direction of the expansion of the soul-making dynamic, what it needs is not just to see the beauty only of the beloved other, only of the erotic object, of the, of the image of, of the other. Not just their beauty. And sometimes that's evident enough. Some people have this pattern where that's really evident, clear. There's the beauty, there's the divinity right there. But also, for the, for the sake of the balance and the sustainability and the opening of the soul-making dynamic, also uh, we need to see the beauty of the self in that constellation. Not just the beauty of the other, the beloved other, the erotic imaginal object, but the beauty of the self and the beauty of the self's eros, the self's passion. My eros, my passion is beautiful. Am I seeing it? Am I seeing the beauty of myself in this self-other imaginal constellation? In that way, then, the soul-making dynamic, the eros psyche logos, um, can, can be... It, it, it doesn't collapse, um, it doesn't contract, it doesn't short-circuit or blow out. And some people, unfortunately, there's, there's uh, almost a habit or a tendency not to see, uh, just to see the beauty of the other, not to see the beauty of, of the self in that imaginal constellation and of the, the self's eros and the self's passion. But in order for the soul-making dynamic and the, and the expansion and the eros to be sustainable, to be stable, to be fertile, in order for that to grow in the ways that we were describing for the, the, and expand and, and um, mutually inseminate and deepen and widen all that, um, this kind of balance, balancing the beauty, the sense of the beauty of the other with the sense of the beauty of the self and the self's eros, so it's good to, to notice if there's a tendency or a habit, one way or another. I mean, I suppose some, some, some people it would be more sort of self-preoccupation uh, um, there and not seeing so much the beauty of the other or whatever. And someone might have, for instance, I just see the beauty and the divinity in the other and I, I don't see it in myself. And very quickly... Um, uh, you know, those with certain psychological trainings might think, ah, yes, well, trace it back to the relationship with the father, or relationship with the mother, whatever it is. Um, careful of the assumptions. Maybe that has something to do with it. Is it causal? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe. Just, whoa, let's have this openness of inquiry. Please, please. And then even if that is... Um, a part of it, or part of the constellation there, or it is even partly causative, it still leaves open the question, what does it need? What does this, uh, what does the soul-making need? What does, so to speak, health need here? And sometimes, again, it's go, it's allowing the image um, to, to, to do its thing. Allowing it its fullness. So it's it's from exploring the image, from entering into it, from having it enter into us, from opening to it and, and having it open to us, listening to the image. So one thing is just, just noticing, in fact, um, giving attention within the imaginal practice. So here's this beautiful, desirable, um, uh, lovely, even di- divine other that there's so much eros and devotion to, etc. 
can I notice? I'm not taking the attention off the other, but I'm widening the field of of the attention within the imaginal practice to the larger, um, if you like, imaginal constellation to notice and and to attend to the the whole self other constellation there and notice um, what is uh, the image of the self here and can I watch it actually gain dimensionality as I include it in my awareness including it allows the self to take on imaginal dimensions not be stuck in a certain narrow or concretized image or, or the usual one or whatever this is the if, we, if you like the natural organic if you like, desire or tendency of the soul-making dynamic of the Eros-Psyche-Logos movement. As we said, it wants to expand, deepen, widen, complicate, enrich, multifaceted, all that. But it wants to expand and deepen and all that, gain dimensions in, if you like, in all directions. That means in the direction of the other, certainly, but also in the direction of the self and in the direction of the Eros. Yeah? I'll read you... something else which someone um, kindly gave me permission to share. And uh, this person was on retreat uh, not too long ago. And um, I'll I'll read it. It's fairly long, but it's it's very instructive and very, very beautifully uh, shared. So uh, she was on retreat and kind of settling into the retreat. And um, over those opening days, however, she noticed... um, uh, I'll speak in the first person. Uh, um, uh, she says, I, m- I noticed my general experience that the, the chitta uh, was entering, it was like entering a deep well of sadness, the personal and global sadness that I had been carrying for some time. Here on the retreat, it finally had no distractions under which to hide. And she was out walking and, and uh, a deep lover of nature, this, uh, the, the woman. And she's out in the forest. I, I felt some opening even just to share this grief with the cold air and with the also silent trees. In our culture, this already would be call, called an imaginal perception of the nature. To share this grief with the cold air and with the also silent trees. Can you hear how we consider that in our culture an imaginal perception? Uh, I stopped to literally hug one, so she actually hugged one, and to linger there, uh, a tree. Its depth and solidity pointed to a resource of strength that wouldn't be diminished by any offering to me. Again, the imaginal perception of the tree, the beauty of that, the, the resource of that. Gaining steadiness in movement, it's impossible to describe what a relief it was to go beyond, beyond even even the prescribed trails at the property's northern edge. I was finally connecting to something wild, at least relatively so. And she had been working with with a teacher with this, with Catherine, in fact, and... uh, and she said, she continues, yet yeah, as you, you meaning Catherine, uh, as you so helpfully observed in our meeting, the sense of belonging I had with nature was non-specific. Loved I was by the forest, but simply as one of Gaia's countless children, all precious and all precious and regarded with universal affection. <clears throat> she continues. Returning that afternoon, uh, properly worn out, uh, she 
did some sitting meditation, and there I was offered by my very personal benefactors all the love that was needed, and then some. So this is now imaginal meditation with certain imaginal figures from her life. Okay, some of whom were dead, but they, they are living in her as, as imaginal figures. In contrast to what I experienced, she continued, in the forest, the love from these departed benefactors was very specific. My stepfather and my teacher, lover, friend, and my first lover, these three were there, and they each, in turn, heard and affirmed me. In all three cases, my lived experience was that they knew and loved the fullness of me. Messy, complicated, wondrous me. So the love there is very particular, not this general love that she had from from the earth before. Very particular, very unique to her. The specificity, the uniqueness of herself is entering into the imaginal relationship, called into the imaginal relationship at that point with these three, which she's calling benefactors, imaginal figures. And she continues, Over the next several days, as I was vigilant in honouring whatever sadness appeared, allowing it to fully be present and responding to whatever seemed to be needed, uh, at this point the forms of sitting and walking seemed not just doable but truly helpful. Uh, So she was getting more into the practice, helped by all this, by the way she was practicing with these images and and with all this, and and being open to the pain. So the image is not a running away from the pain, it's a way of actually um, opening. The image is a way, is a portal to the pain, the pain is a portal to the image, and then just something much more. Uh, The form is truly helpful, um, though my walking path still had to be outdoors. I began to appreciate my heart for its insistence, its unyielding demand for my attention and rejection of the forms that would skip over its pain. So she was really up for all this. But but now, she continues, now my extended walks into the forest were growing slowly and quietly in joy. It was on day seven of of the retreat, and she reports something. Uh, She was getting ready to go outside for... Uh, to to walk, uh, to go for a walk, in fact. And then she says, so beautiful, like like childhood friends at the front door, impatiently waiting on my presence to begin after-school play, the forest now seemed to be calling me, specifically me, out for a romp. Come out, come play, come back. This is the forest talking to her. Okay, okay, my heart responded. I'm lacing these snow boots as fast as I can. Uh, so she's already, by going into the image, by, or, by allowing the image, the, 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 um, the, the uniqueness of herself has been called into that image that previously was uh, not... Uh, was was more general and not unique. Um, And then she continues, following a different route but still heading north and beyond the trail boundaries, I came to a gentle micro-valley under a canopy of pine. I was brought to the confluence of two small streams, a place flat and low with bright sun streaming through onto shapes and colours of such beauty. Rock, snow, dark earth, moss, water revealing and water reflecting. 
I stood on a squared-off stone, elevated right at the stream's intersection, and listened to their perfect sound, the sound of needs met. And then out of the quiet space of my mind came the sense, this place is happy. This place is happy in part because I'm here with it. We're together, enjoying this moment and one another as each of us. Rocks, waters, mosses, trees, me, creatures, bit of earth and bit of sky brings our specific selves to this. We're friends, hanging out. Very beautiful. On the way back to the retreat centre, a snowy clearing, brilliant white in the sun, called me over. I traipsed through and, having reached the spot, laid out spread eagle. Through sparse branches, I gazed up on the blue above. And she continues, very, very beautiful uh, sharing there. Um, so that's quite that's quite complex. There's a lot in that in terms of the, the points. So let's let's draw out a few here. Um, first is love is there with the imaginal. In the imaginal is love, and and with imaginal perceptions there is love. Can we notice the love? I think I've said this before already on this retreat. It's there. Almost by definition, I would say, love is part of the imaginal. Sometimes we don't notice it. Sometimes it's not obvious. Sometimes it's a kind of love um, that we're not used to. It's not a conventional sort of expression of love, so we, we almost miss it. But can we notice it, and can we feel into what what is the quality of this love? What kind of love is it? Because it might not be conventional. There is love in in the imaginal, with images, with imaginal perceptions. Can we notice it? We love images. What is an image for for us is something we love. And again, even that might not be obvious. But sometimes even less obvious, sometimes even less obvious, is that the images love us. We love the images, and the images love us. And this can open out, and that's partly what happened in in this this uh, yogi's story that she shared so beautifully. So how how can we uh, how can we allow this? Not by closing down, saying, "Oh, it's not the same. I'm um, I love them more than they love me, or, or whatever." Or um, sometimes we can just open it. Uh, notice it, excuse me, and that allows it to open. What we attend to, what we tune into, amplifies, gains life like a flower um, um, unfolding its petals and, and its beauty and its radiance through the light of our attention and our attunement and our sensitivity. And sometimes how how the whole love in the, in both ways in the imaginal constellation opens out is actually by allowing yourself to feel and speak your love, uh, even maybe maybe voice your love to the to the imaginal, but feel your love, feeling your love of the imaginal other, the beloved other, um, you begin to feel, again, if you open up, just stay noticing, stay attuned, stay sensitive, that the that the image loves you back. Uh, really, really uh, important, really, really helpful. And then is it possible to dwell in that love, to open the heart, the being, the energy body, the soul, the psyche to that love? 
And maybe it comes through the gaze. We'll talk about this in in the instructions. The gaze of of the imaginal other or lover or figure of love or whatever. And there can be so much healing in this. So much healing. Uh, in, in being loved, in feeling loved, in recognizing that one is loved. So much healing, so much beauty there, so much resource and nourishment. And it's not always easy sometimes to to open to or to be, if you like, under the gaze, or even of a, a gaze that's uh, full of love, that is nothing but love, that's in, intense with love, um, is not always easy. It's interesting, it's complex. Sometimes that's complex for people because there's a shame and uh, even a fear or certainly a discomfort at being seen deeply. And this gaze of the imaginal other, um, whether it's a person in our life uh, that we're perceiving imaginally or or just an intrapsychic image, there's the um, there's a shame or fear or discomfort of being seen, and something um, in a person wants to flee from that and and wants to refuse it or just can't take it in. So sometimes there's an ambivalence. One longs to be seen so deeply. Is there a longing to be seen and to be seen deeply? And there's a fear of being seen because of the shame, etc. And what happens with these two opposite, these conflicting forces, and sometimes all kinds of um, contorted and painful and strange sort of um, manifestations, uh, you know, determining the behavior because we've got these two conflicting forces and what we do in terms of public attention and um, certain, all kinds of things there. And it's it's complex. Um, Maybe... One one of the options, I mean, this is common, I'm not going to go so much into it now, but maybe just to say this, because it's in, in the line of the theme we're, we're exploring, maybe actually one can ask, if that is the case, here I'm trying to open to the gaze of the imaginal other, but actually that's quite difficult too. Um, the loving gaze, even that's difficult to open to. So what does the imaginal other do in response to my ambivalence, in response to my fear, in response to my shame? What do they say to us, this image, this imaginal figure? What do they do? Um, What is, if you like, their wisdom, their wise and loving response in response to our ambivalence, our fear, our closing off, our refusal, our fleeing? In that um, uh, story that I um, shared just now from the yogi, um, there's a, there was a kind of inequality in the love, that that was partly what was painful for her. Um, the uh, image loved her, if you like, the, the, in this case the image of the earth or the, the trees, etc. Um, they loved her, but in this general way, she was just one of countless of Gaia's children, I think is how she put it, um, just sort of generic universal love, if you like, emanating from nature. It's still imaginal, um, but in contrast, she was 
in love with the earth. She was in love with particular trees and the, the uniqueness, etc. So there was this kind of imbalance of the general versus the uniqueness and also of kind of just loving versus being, so to speak, in love. And in that respect, too, because of that imbalance, we could say, <coughs> in terms of our theory, that the era of psyche logos dynamic is um, blocked relatively speaking, in one direction, in the direction of from the image to her, or from, yeah, let's say that, from the image to her. You see, so it's, it's moving unblocked in one direction, the eros, the, the imaginal, is filling out and flowing, penetrating deeply, richly, multidimensionally in one direction, but it's, it's more stifled, not completely blocked, but more stifled in, in, in the direction towards the self. But as she, um, you know, using other images and hanging out with the images and not going away from the emotion and working with it, in this case over some days, uh, uh, may take longer, may take much shorter, you know, much shorter, so anything's possible here. But working with it, the image um, then, uh, the, the love of the image for her unique self, it was her that the forest was impatient for, come out and play, you, we want to play with you. Um, her beauty, her uniqueness, so the, the sense of self there is, uh, the uniqueness of the self is is called into the image and given, um, it, it becomes uh, uh, an object of very specific love. And there's an equality, a balancing of the, the two loves there. Her love for the trees, is now balanced by the tree's love for her. Not just general love both ways, but unique love for uniqueness, love for particularities, particular loves flowing now both ways, not just one way. And with all that, eventually, the image's sort of love, if you like, becomes eros. So the the forest, we could say the forest in this case, the trees have not just love for her, they, they have erotic love for her. In other words, the self becomes an erotic object. The self becomes an erotic object, can become an erotic object for myself in the way that I look at myself or in the way that, that it feels I sense that the image is looking at me. I become alive. Self, this unique self, becomes alive as an erotic object, becomes an erotic beloved other even. Either to myself or to, or to the image, and so in that, because eros and Im, image go together, the self comes alive as an image, and because dimensionality is part of image, as we keep stressing, and dimensionality starts to shade into the divine dimensions, um, the the self comes alive as image. And, and it gains dimensionality, and it gains div divinity eventually. Maybe suddenly, maybe just gradually, there's a, there's a gradual transition. And this is coming in the image, in the imaginal practice, or even from the image. Yeah. So there's two, there's two aspects to that uh, story that, w that was shared there. Um, there's the aspect of love, and the opening of love, and the opening to love. So the opening of love and the opening to love, and also the inclusion of the self and the opening of that self as uh, in its imaginal dimensions. The inclusion of the self and the opening of the self. 
the opening to love and the opening of love. Yeah, so there's different aspects of all, all, all kind of mixed in into one there. And could give countless sort of examples of this kind of thing. Again, what it means for our practice and for this question of balance and artistry and uh, sustainability and fertility and all that, um, and tending the fire and mastery of the fire and, and the vessel, all that, it means that um, the object and the self and the world, and that's where the cosmopoesis comes in in terms of the imaginal perception of the world, but all these three, object, self, and world, actually and eros, because we said that before, the four, object, self, world, um, and eros, need to be included, included in the soul-making dynamic, included, they're part of the imaginal constellation, and we need to um, let the imaginal constellation open to really, really spill over and involve them, and include those dimensions, the world and the self, um, as well as the other, in our attention, in our attunement, in our sensitivity and, and opening. So opening to the, 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 the other, the self and the world as images, um, that brings balance. So as if this, if you can imagine this soul-making dynamic, this expansion of Eros, Psyche and Logos, if it expands you know, in one direction and not in the other direction, it's lopsided, it's out of balance. It wants to organically expand in all, um, in all directions, if you like, equally. So again, talking about in, in imaginal practice, but also in relationship, because deep relationships are imaginally infused. They have imaginal dimensions. If they don't, we, they, they become problematic for us. Now, when I say opening uh, to, to these other self-world yours as images, it means, um, as always, it means, as a reminder now, not reified and not identified with. Seeing image as image. And sometimes um, uh, I encounter someone um, where there's uh, there is a sense, a very, very strong, beautiful, palpable sense of the divinity of the other and also the self. Okay, so there's a balance there, but um, unfortunately, um, oftentimes the image, the images there, the divinity and the image there is not seen as image. Image is not seen as image. It's rather, it's reified. And then... Um, in the case of someone I'm particularly thinking of, what, what happens is there's, um, she moves between a kind of self-elevation um, and a self-hatred. The two um, reified poles of, of this, this dynamic. So moving into the sense of divinity of the self, okay, great, the self's included, it's not just the other. Um, there's not just divinity outside of me, um, but it get, there's a kind of elevation there. Uh, she's buying into it, uh, or she's reifying it, and um, uh, and and then that swings to a kind of self hatred and shame, etc. The images are literalized. There's a um, a kind of um, bipolarism, you could say, operating there because of the reification. Because image is not understood as image; it's not understood to be empty. And um, uh, sometimes, sometimes it's a uh, per- person says something like, um, 
you know, I'm really into emptiness practice. I'm really um, attracted to it, and and it goes really well for me. But then I, I begin to see everything is empty, and this whole insubstantiality of everything. I feel like I'm flying, and then I feel like I'm invincible. And that goes into something that um, might be almost a little bit of what psychologists would would diagnose as mania, kind of uh, unipolar manic e- e- episode. Um, and then, and then people will say, "Oh, and maybe this person says, "Oh, I need to go out and do some gardening and dig some earth and be stomp around in my Wellingtons and uh, you know kick around in the soil and definitely practice emptiness less uh, or practice less in general because it's all you know getting out of hand because there's too much emptiness, etc." Is that the only option? And is that what really needs to happen? Is that is that even the pro- correct diagnosis of the problem? Too much emptiness. Is it actually that in um, when when a person says, "I see everything is empty," actually you've seen everything empty except one thing. That invincible self is the, is the thing left out of the emptiness. So the whole world is empty and everyone else is empty and, and this invincible self unfortunately <laughs> is is reified, is believed in and identified with is um taken to be real. Not seen as image, not seen as empty. Actually, you could say needs more emptiness. I need to uh, the emptiness, the sense of image as image needs to be um pervading equally the self as well as the world. Yeah? So this kind of <coughs> um, imbalance or, or lack of pervasion is very, very common. Um, you know, at times, this is sort of inclinations uh, uh, there. Um, a person might have, for example, a whole fantasy um, or elevation of a fantasy or an image of, say, passion or a passionate person, or being a passionate person, or another might have just a similar one of a kind of more um, equanimous person, say a sort of standard image of a uh, common image of like what a good Buddhist looks like, or what an awakening person looks like, sort of really equanimous, etc. And 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 sometimes they, there's not the seeing of image as image, and the image is kind of actually. Um, it, the image itself has kind of got stuck and got a little bit rigid. Um, not only is there attachment to it, but it's it's actually stuck. It's prevented from actually expanding and having its multi-dimensional dimensionality in life. So often it's in the in the in allowing the image its multi-dimensionality that it actually um, l- loses its uh, its reification. So it's in allowing the image its fullness that it's it loses its reification, and, and we, in because we see its multi-dimensionality, we we uh, and allow it to have that. Oftentimes, it's that that actually allows us to let go of the reification, the identification. Sometimes we are shrink, kind of rigidifying an image, or or shrinking ourselves to try and fit into some rigid image. It could be passion, it could be equanimity, like I said, but the, an image is bigger than an, an emotion. Yeah. So, um, it, it, again, it's letting, letting the image fill out, making sure image is image, and it's not something, uh, some rigid, uh, concretized, literalized uh, thing.
So we can ask in imaginal practice, and again, purely intrapsychic or or with in relation to someone in our life, who, who is involved here, excuse me, in this imaginal constellation? Who is it? Who is this beloved other? Because I can reduce the image to to the the flat one-dimensional person. But who is the self as well? So one, one thing you can do is... There's eros. There's this imaginal thing going on, um, and and who actually? Just gently, who who am I right now? Who is the self in this image, or who is the one participating in this imaginal constellation with an other? And who is the other? So that in in asking that, we allow and we, we allow self to become image, or we notice what the image of self is, or who is participating in this image, and it. It may be the usual sense of self that we have. It's me, it's Rob, it's whoever. But just it gains imaginal dimensions. It's that the, the, through, particip- through being included in the imaginal uh, practice, it gains imaginal dimensions. Or it may be that it, it, it bears very little similarity to the, um, the usual self. Uh, but who we can ask who is a gentle way of of including the self or just just look um, and with all this that we're that we're talking about um again we're talking about navigation here navigating balancing responding inclining gliding so one possibility um if we speak generally now is that we can in practice working with an image in in our life in in our practice or whatever on the cushion um we can tune in with sensitivity and and notice and follow what is autonomously emerging or given in and with the image. In other words, we're not doing anything. We're just tuning, noticing, and following, and if you like, trusting the soul intelligence of the image or in the image. Trusting the soul intelligence of or in the image. At other times, or to a certain extent, at other times, we can do something slightly different or have a different kind of tack approach um, relationship with the imaginal uh, practice where we're deliberately leaning or inclining or gently, subtly guiding the practice in, in all kinds of different directions if we want. So, for example, um, with an erotic beloved other in, in the imaginal, to a kind of melting union with that other, um, with the beloved other, with the, with the erotic object, to um, dissolving perhaps in light or love or whatever it is. Essentially, it's, it's uh, towards less fabrication through the erotic connection, but actually allowing it to to go towards this melting union. So that's one option. You can actually lean that way, or let it go that way if it wants to. Um, but you can also modulate that movement, temper that movement um, with practice, with skill, so that it goes a little bit um, of a way towards that union and towards less fabrication, but only to a relative degree of uh, insubstantiality, insubstantiality of the perception of materiality. So there's a little bit of fading, but actually the forms are retained, and the particularities and the uniqueness um, and the 
shape uh, or the character of self and other of the two people, two beings of the image is retained, but they become lighter and more insubstantial. So you can kind of play with this spectrum with practice. Where where you're modulating that, and where where will you kind of hang out on that spectrum? You can experiment with colors, uh, adding or, or or seeing what color um, the other wants to be, or your own body, or the interaction, or whatever it is, or the breath. We played with that a little bit on the <coughs> um, the poetry of perception retreat. Um, you can. Um, you know, deliberately tune into giving and or receiving healing, different kinds of healing, um, or different kinds of different of the Brahma Viharas. We'll come back to this metta or compassion or mudita, or whatever, different kinds of love. You can um, just emphasize the, the kind of sensitivity and exploration of the energy body or the particular sense of sacredness, that's what you're kind of tuning to and exploring, or the particular sense of divinity, or the particular cosmopoesis that's spilling over, that's happening, or the particular kind of love. Or um, something also we'll, we'll come back to in the instructions as well. You know, I mentioned sometimes with an image <clears throat> and with the eros there, there's a sense of duty a duty that either the imaginal, uh, one of the imaginal characters has, or that the self has, and it kind of um, translates in some way or another to my life, or doesn't, or whatever. There's some kind of sense of duty. And again, you, you, that could be what you kind of incline towards and draw out through, through your attention, through delicately focusing on that. It's the duty. So it's not without the energy body. Energy body is always there. It's not without an, aware, uh, an awareness of the emotions. That's always there. So there's a certain <coughs> kind of fundamental inclusion of certain aspects. But we're talking about the relative balancing of where you put the attention, what you draw out through the attention, what you dwell on, what you kind of focus on a little bit. And so with the sense of duty, whose duty? Who is the character here, the imaginal character who feels this duty, who carries out this duty? What is the duty? Um, And and it doesn't mean necessarily figuring out what it means, like the practical steps I need to take in my life. Just just staying with the more imaginal, the pregnant, the depth and and the beauty of the feeling of, of duty. Maybe it constellates an image, or the image changes. Maybe it constellates a sense of devotion. And that's a feeling, that feeling of devotion. And and maybe that comes, often it does come, if we notice it, um, allowing the sense of devotion, and there's an alignment in the energy body. We're aligned with that devotion to that duty. There's great beauty here, great depth, great power and strength. Uh, without any hardness. But that alignment of the energy body is itself a state of balance. And we're talking all about balance here. It's also a state of rootedness. I'm rooted in what I'm devoted to. I'm rooted in my duty because the energy body is aligned there with it. And you can actually feel the energy body rooted in something deep. It becomes um, unshakable almost. Again, there's a kind of equanimity emerging from the imaginal, from the erotic imaginal. So all these deliberate inclinations, plus all the ones we mentioned before, towards samadhi or metta or whatever, all, all of that's possible. 
um, w w that kind of let go of the image, uh, you know, anything uh, like that that we've mentioned before is possible. So you can get this sense of how how much, uh, how great a range um, and, and a subtly differentiated range there is of, of where you can incline, um, like a ship on the open water or a boat on the open water or uh, a bird in the sky um, gliding on the air currents. There's potentially at least, just dependent on the skill, there's a kind of almost, unless the conditions are really strong one, one way or another, there's, there's an almost infinite <coughs> degree of um, uh, precise directionality available, 360 degrees, etc., and also depth up and down and all that. <coughs> let's, um, let's point out a few more things that are, or, or, or um, directions, dimensions that are available here with imaginal practice, if we're allowing the image and allowing the eros. I'm going to mention four uh, right now. If we <coughs> allow the image and enter into it, open to it, um, let it open, and the eros, then it's possible that we either start to discover a certain um, dimensions of the imaginal, if you like, or again, we can almost a little bit look for them or incline towards deliberately um, resurrecting them if we've experienced them before or whatever. So the first, uh, the first of these four I'd, I'd like to just, just enumerate now is that we see and feel the desire, and whatever the specificity of that desire is, it might be the desire, it might be the desire for uh, sex or certain sexual um, interaction or, or something, you know, whatever it is, a kiss or this or that, or, or something non-sexual, whatever. We see and feel the specific desire as what William Blake called a divine influx. So he, he used that word somewhere or other as, as a... As a um, a kind of idea of the emotions that we feel are divine influxes. And what happens when we decide to see something or we start perceiving something as a divine influx? In this case, desire. This very specific desire. What happens if I sense it, see it, feel it in all its specificity as divine influx? In other words, it's not, as we would usually assume, this desire that I'm feeling is mine. Not that usual perspective, but actually, that the desire, this very specific desire, is coming from or given by God, if we use that word, divinity, uh, whatever word you want to use. It's flowing through me, or flowing through us, um, if, it, if it's mutual with someone else. Um, uh, again, we're talking about a conception here, but one that needs to be translated to a perception. Conceptions on their own, disembodied, abstract not much help at all. This conception, this is this desire, this desire that I'm feeling right now, I'm in touch with my energy body, I'm in touch with the desire, I'm in touch with the image, um, all of that, um, uh, uh, can I perceive it? Either I notice or I discover that it is, or I deliberately see it as a divine influx. It's coming from the divine, from a God flowing through me. And then what happens? Again, it, there's an opening, because you're opening up another dimension of the imaginal. 
And because there's the opening of the psyche and the logos there, there's this space to tolerate. There can be even an increase of the eros with that, um, but there's uh, there's space there. Uh, and uh, and peace, you know. So that's one seeing and feeling the desire as a divine influx. A second, I alluded to it very briefly uh, before, um, and it's can I notice that that which is desired, whatever it is, this kiss, this I want to dance with you, what 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 whatever it is, you know, or even some very intense sexual. Uh, desire or something, whatever, um, wh- whatever you know, sexual or not, that which is desired, it may be perceivable as already happening. It's already happening, not so to speak on the actual physical level, but it's already happening on the imaginal level, eternally, so to say, in what Henri Corbin calls hierophanic time. I can't remember if I've used that phrase. I think I have on this retreat. Hierophanic time. Hierophanic means the, the appearance of um, sacred. So in, in, in sacred time, we could say, which isn't a time that flows past, present, future, past, present, future, um, like that. It's almost like images exist uh, in what I call I, as icons um, eternally. There's just this discrete icon and that discrete icon. They may have connections, but they're not temporal connections of cause and effect, and this comes before that. And and one can get a sense, when one feels deeply into an image and opens deeply to an image, that this thing and this desire, Eros and image are connected, this desire, well, that which I desire, the image of that which I desire, is perceivable as already happening on the imaginal level eternally, timelessly, in hierophanic time. Again, we're talking about a conception, not something abstract, but a conception that, so to speak, is a seed um, in the perception, in, in becomes a way of looking. Conception needs to be translated to perception. I actually perceive this as already happening, this, this image of this desire that I, I would like fulfilled. And again, the question as well, who? Who is it who is um, kissing this image, who is dancing, who is um, whatever it is, making love in hierophanic time? Who is it that's eternally making love in that way? And again, seeing in this way, that that level of imaginal perception opens up and the problem goes out of the whole thing. The problem of of desire may have felt quite problematic, quite intense, quite hard to tolerate. It goes out of it. A whole other dimension is added with that. All the beauty and all the fullness, all the richness, all the divinity of that. So that's a second. A third possibility, and this is a kind of subtle variation of, um, of those two, if, in a way, um, is that the, <clears throat> the desire that I'm feeling and the self the image of the self, and the image of the other, they are all theophanies. The desire, the self, and the other are all theophanies. They are all faces of the divine, or they are, if you like, parts of one larger theophany. So it's not as in the first one that the desire is is 
the deity's desire, or whatever, or, or, or the, the Buddha's uh, desire for his consort, or whatever. Um, it's not that the desire is, is, is this God's desire, but the desire itself is divine, or is an aspect of divinity. It's a very subtle difference, but um, you know can, you can play with this. And again, if, if I can um, see that way, if I can sense that way, imagine, if I can perceive that way imaginally, then there's space, there's beauty, uh, and, and all the, the, the peace that comes with that. And the fourth, uh, just for right now, is that the whole constellation, uh, in other words, of the object desired, um, the image of the self-desiring, and the desire itself, the whole imaginal constellation of, of the eros, is um, seen, felt, perceived as, uh, if you like, God making love to herself, or himself. The whole constellation of object desired, of image of um, the self-desiring, I'm the one who desires, or who is this one that desires, and the desire is, all of it is God making love to her or himself. And again, you can uh, um, re- recall the image of, of those, those Buddha images on tankas or mandalas, etc. The This or that Buddha, whoever it is, or the different Buddhas, in, in Yabhyum, in, in um, erotic uh, union, uh, uh, making love, if you like, with, with their consort. Is there something that, and that um, the Buddha there is, is regarded as not just, it's this Buddha and his consort, that the Buddha is the totality of, of the, the male and the female figure. So the consort is, is, is um, they together are the Buddha. See? So the whole thing, the whole constellation is, if you like, God making love to her himself. The Buddha, or this or that Buddha, making love to her himself. Can I find that way in, uh, or see that way, sense that way, perceive that way? And for some of you, this is going to sound like, wow, I could never do that. Actually, this is all available with practice. This is all available, maybe a lot easier than you um, suppose. But then, the self is is not as it usually is regarded as uh, the self is the basic actor or the basic desirer. Basically, it's me desiring, etc. And the other is not in these in this imaginal perception, this this dimension. The imagine the other is not what the um, conventional perception of 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 the other, uh, what it seems to conventional perception. But but. Careful with this, because it's not here that the self and the other are, it's just that they're empty. It's not only that they're empty or that they're divine in some kind of universal way, as we've touched on there, or they're partaking or they're essentially um, universal love or universal awareness or whatever it is, um, or beingness or whatever the version of universal oneness is. It's not that they're only empty, and it's not that they're just universally divine. And nor is it that the desire is only anatta, not self. Yeah. If if I regard, if desire comes up for me, and I regard, um, 
I regard it as anatta, and I keep that practice, and just not me, not mine, and then I'm focusing on the desire and regarding it as not me, not mine, what actually happens is the desire fades, and if I keep doing the practice, then the sense, the sense of the self will fade with it, and if I, if I really go deep with the anatta practice, the sense of the object fades. Desire, self, and object actually fade. So that's different than seeing it as, it's, it's not my desire, but it's not just anatta, it's God's desire, it's this divinity, it's the Buddha's eros, it's the Buddha's desire. Or it's the, the deities or the, 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 the uh, Buddha nature's desire to know herself fully, as fully as possible. That's a different thing, that's a different um, perception, it's a different way of looking than just saying it's just anatta, it's just not, not me, not mine. And they all lead to very different results. <clears throat> okay. This is all. This is all. This in in the phenomenology of um, our experience and our exploration of eros and soul making, because seeing the desire as the deity's desire, the Buddha's desire, seeing it as the Buddha nature's desire to know herself fully as possible, as, as God's desire to know Himself fully as possible, um, then the eros sustains, or even expands, increases, deepens, gets richer. And the sense, the perception of self and other are retained. The the, the um, imaginal self, the imaginal other are retained or amplified or whatever. There isn't a fading. There is instead, as there would be in the anatta practice, there is instead, um, or regarding the desires anatta, there is instead the the increase, the swelling, the tumescence, the expansion, widening, deepening, etc. of the soul-making dynamic of the Eros Psyche Logos. So much so that, that it can be seen even more clearly as this is, this is God's soul-making dynamic. This is God's Eros Psyche Logos. And sometimes we can have a set, the whole thing deepens even further. We get the sense that all instances of Eros are, if you like, instantiations of the, what should we call it, the erotic dynamic of the world soul. The whole thing spills over into kind of a vast sense of cosmopoesis and divinity. All instances of Eros are the, are the instant, are instantan, instantiations of the erotic dynamic of the world soul, desiring, wanting to grow, to expand, to fertilize, to grow new shoot, to create, discover uh, new perspectives, new perceptions, new experiences. Craving releases, is decreased. The imaginal, the images of self and other grow, deepen, widen, gain new facets, dimensions. Not uh, the tightness that might have been experienced before if the desire was problematic. And, and in this movement opening, there isn't the tightness, there isn't the reification, there's space, as I said, space, peace, beauty, with with the desire. One hasn't erased the eros, one has kept it, actually taken it deeper. Nor the image, nor the other, nor the self. These things are given other dimensions, etc. So, do, looking in this way, learning to look in these ways, I'm just you know, offering a few, a few, again, possibilities in practice, but with all of this, um, craving, contraction, dukkha, dissolve, um, soul-making, 
uh, and and the sense of beauty and sacredness and all that increases because the eros psychologos dynamic is is allowed to expand and to open up new dimensions in that expansion beauty soul making sense of divinity sacredness all that thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org/donate